before we come to have a look at uh, Mark chapter 11, I want to begin on a personal, personal note, uh, following up from an email that Andrew sent out on Monday of the week just gone. Uh, late last year, very late last year actually, I was invited to become the senior chaplain up at Barker College. And the role there is to lead the team of chaplains and Christian studies teachers and to look after Christian ministry in that vast and growing school. Um, Late last year I accepted the role and the plan is to kick that off in term two after Easter. Um, We'll be very sad to leave church ministry, although we're going to stay here with the family, stay here at church, which will provide a lovely bit of continuity for us and also the chance to stay involved in some of the ministry along the way. Uh, Reflecting on things over the last year while we're still processing, I think I feel in equal measure excitement for the gospel opportunities in this giant school, but also equal measure daunted by the scope of the role and so on. I want to thank those who have um, let us know they're praying for us in this time of transition and and preparing for the next steps. Thank you for your support. And um, I guess if I could just ask for you to keep praying for us and the family as we move towards this uh, change coming after Easter. But before we get there, loads of um, work to get on with here, lots of things to do to set the year up for um, church ministry here, and that's what we'll be giving ourselves to in the coming months before we make that move after Easter. So let's get into today's work, which is to look at Mark chapter 11, and I'll pray that um, the Lord will open our minds and incline our hearts to hear his word. Let's do that. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that Christ did not stay in comfort and glory in heaven, but he travelled to earth. And we thank you that we can read now of this moment when he came to Jerusalem. And as we do it, and as He, um, we, we find out what he did at the temple there, open our minds and our hearts so that we might truly worship you and truly come to reflect our faith in you through the way we pray and the way we receive your forgiveness and extend your forgiveness to others. We ask all of this through the power of the Spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have been with us over recent weeks and even over recent months last year, you'll know that we've been tracing the journey of Christ through the Gospel of Mark. It's a journey that's looped around the north lots and lots as Jesus has crossed the lake on one side, then he's come back, he's gone to this city and that city. A lot of action has taken place up in the north of Galilee. He has taught huge crowds, he has performed many miracles, stopping storms, clearing of leprosy, casting demons, raising people from the dead. Jesus has taught the thronging crowds about the kingdom of God and many, many, many people have believed. Jesus could, in one sense, have stayed up in the north for a lot longer. He was quite popular there, safe, dare I say, they're never truly safe, but safer up in the north. Yet Jesus knew, even with the growing crowds and the people coming to understand the light of the kingdom, that he had an even deeper mission, which was to make his journey down south to Jerusalem. Now, helpfully through Mark's story, Jesus has told us, the reader, but also his friends, the disciples, what would happen in Jerusalem. So we come to this part of Mark's Gospel with a bit of um, anticipation and tension. He's told us that when he gets to this great city, the city of David, the royal city, that that will be the location of his betrayal. After being betrayed, there he will suffer, and after suffering he will die. So we know why he's making the journey. We know the facts of what will happen when he gets there. But Jesus has done even more. 
helpfully, he's told the disciples and us as readers the significance of that suffering. He said that I, as the king, didn't come to earth to be served. I've come to serve. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus told his friends that so they wouldn't be surprised. And so as the readers, we know this, so we won't be surprised. And with every chapter that brings us closer to the cross, our excitements, but also our tension and nervousness all ramps up because we know what's about to happen. It helps us to understand the strange arrival that Jesus has as he comes into the royal city. Jerusalem, all through the Old Testament, is described to be as the city of God. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, coming into his capital should be a moment of great triumph, great celebration, great victory. But we've already noticed the way in which he came in. Uh, We're going to come and look at that in a moment, but let me just um, give a little insight into the structure of these 25 verses. Jesus times his arrival into Jerusalem to match the Passover. The Passover means that the city of Jerusalem, the population swells to four or five times the usual amount. There are so many people packed into Jerusalem that Jesus can't move freely. So in this last week of his life, he stays in a tiny city just outside Jerusalem called Bethany. It's a little bit of a journey, not too long, a bit of a journey. And so we'll follow in the structure here. Each morning, he leaves Bethany, travels into Jerusalem, does something in there, and then in the evening he travels out and stays in Bethany. Day two, travels in from Bethany into Jerusalem, then in the evening back out. And then we've got this going and coming, going and coming, and that's going to be the structure of this last week of Jesus' life. And so you can see on the outline there, I've just simply got day one, day two, and day three, and you'll see how that structure kind of folds in on itself to give us the real meaning of Jesus' encounter at the temple and the fig tree that we read about just now in chapter 11. So that's the structure. Um, We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and what I've called day one is really day one in Jerusalem. And so you can see there, he's leaving, he's approaching, he comes through Bethphage and and, uh, Bethany, he comes through the Mount of Olives, And here is his first entry into the royal city. Yet he does it on a donkey. Without the red carpet, without the grand announcement, without any of the flourish that you would get for a royal visit, he sneaks in. He does this because we know he's not the king coming to be served, but the king coming to serve. We know that. And the crowds are learning that. This is a very different order of king. He's not a king of the usual human order, the pecking order that goes up and up and up and up and up. This is the king of God's order that goes down and down and down and down to serve. And so he comes in, a bit of a crowd, palm branches thrown, some cloaks. And the only announcement are these ancient songs being revived, messianic songs being revived and applied to that one on the donkey. Little did the crowd know what would come that week, but they praise him as their king. When Jesus comes in and makes his way past this giant crowd, 
flooding Jerusalem. Think circular key on New Year's Eve. That's Jerusalem in Passover. And Jesus has timed it to match Passover because at this particular festival, of all the Old Testament festivals, this one had a heightened expectation that God would act. That's what happened the first Passover. God acted to rescue his people from Egypt. And now at this Passover, God will do it again, but in a very drastically different way. Jesus makes his way in, he's in, and where does he go first? Not to the palace, I mean there's no such thing yet for the king of Jerusalem. He goes first to the temple. The temple is to Jerusalem what the White House is to Washington. The temple dominates Jerusalem physically, it's a big giant structure laden with gold, but more importantly it dominates Jerusalem symbolically and spiritually. The temple was the heart of Judaism. The temple is the lifeblood of the nation. It's the lifeline. It's their connection point to God. And so if the nation wanted to pray, to offer sacrifices, to worship, they always come to this place, the temple, because it's where God promised his presence would be. So Jesus goes there and he does it to assess the spiritual health of the nation. And when he gets there, take a look in verse 11. Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's his assessment. But he doesn't say a word, he doesn't do anything, he just thinks about it, sits on it. He's done his assessment, but it's late. And so he travels back out to Bethany where he is staying. What's he thinking? What does he make of the temple? We were left hanging, and that's day one. Day two, verse 12, the next day. They set out from Bethany again, and he's making a beeline for the temple. But first in the distance, we find out that Jesus was hungry. It's one of these characteristic eyewitness details that Mark throws in. Jesus is hungry. And seeing in the distance a big leafy green fig fig tree, Jesus thinks, ah, that's where I'll get some food. As he gets closer and closer, he realises that there's no food, there's just leaves, pushing the leaves and branches aside, no fruit at all, the cupboard is bare. So Jesus curses the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. I think to the disciples this must have seemed just a little bit strange, if not a bit harsh. Jesus, it's just a tree. It's not even the season for figs. And yet he's cursed the figs for not cursed the tree for not producing any fruit. Jesus, just w- why is he doing this? Now all of that is going to make sense on day three. So we have to leave the fig tree hanging there for a moment. That'll become clear. And Jesus keeps walking on, and there he is, beeline straight to the temple. To fully understand the significance of what he does here in the temple, we need to get something of the structure of the building in our minds. The temple was like a concentric, uh, concentric circles going outwards. The closer you got in, the closer you could get to God. That's the basic structure of the temple. So right in the very heart is a room called the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was thought to be, and um, only the high priest a couple of times a year could go into the Holy of Holies. And then further out, different layers, um, all with barriers and structures as to who could approach. The outer ring 
was what was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the part of the temple where anyone from any nation, any country, any race could go. It was designed that way because the temple was meant to also be a place not only where Israel, but all the nations could come and pray to the God of Israel. But they couldn't come further, but they had the outer ring called the court of Gentiles. And this is where the action takes place. Uh, Many years before Jesus came along, one of the high priests in charge of the whole temple precinct decided to move a marketplace into the court of the Gentiles. It was a marketplace that was absolutely necessary for the running of the temple. You could buy doves and animals there for the sacrifices you needed. At the marketplace, you could exchange money from the Roman coins to the temple coins. So the marketplace was required, but that used to be outside on the Mount of Olives. This high priest thought, if we bring it into the temple precinct, we, the priesthood, can make some extra money from the markets. And so they moved it in, but they moved it into the exact spot where the nations would come to pray, turning their area, the court of the Gentiles, far from a place of prayer to become an Easter show-like market with animals moving back and forward, noisy crowd, people just there to make profit and all the time the high priest skimming some money off the top. This is where it takes place. And so confronted by this scene, Jesus realises that the high priests had robbed the nations of their place to pray in the temple of Israel. And that explains verse 15. Confronted with this, Jesus began driving out those who were buying and selling there, overturning tables of the money changers, toppling benches covered by dove cages, blocking those moving goods around. This is quite a frenetic and almost violent scene. Can you hear the coins clinking as they roll away, people trying to grab them? There's a flurry of wings and voices and yelling, everything being scattered around. Jesus is absolutely furious by what he sees. These are his actions welling up from a desire and passion for a holy God that's been corrupted by the temple. This temple was meant to be the beating lifeblood, a connection point for humans to come to God, but the temple itself had just become a hardened shell. It had been blocked. And so it was blocking people coming to God. In verse 17, Jesus declared, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now take a look at verse 17 there, and our English translations on page 981 help us out just to show us that these quotes are not just Jesus saying the information, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And whenever you come across Old Testament quotes, It always pays off to look them up and see where they've come from. And these two sentences that Jesus takes from the Old Testament for this moment come from two different places. One is from Isaiah 7. Uh, We had this, oh sorry, Isaiah 56. Sorry, Isaiah 56. We had this read earlier, Isaiah 56, where God gives the vision for the temple. The temple was to be a place of prayer for all nations to come to know the living God of Israel. And yet, it hadn't become that. Because 
they had turned it into a den of robbers. This second quote comes from a much darker place in the Old Testament. It comes from Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 contains an infamous sermon that the prophet Jeremiah preached on the steps of the temple, this same temple. He stood there, he took his place on the steps and he preached against those who were streaming into worship on this particular day. He preached against the nation as a whole. And the thrust of his sermon in Jeremiah 7 is, you think that God is happy with you just because you have this building, the temple? You are wrong. You are treating this building, the temple, like a giant lucky charm. And so they would say things like, oh, well, our enemies, the Babylonians, they can't touch us because we've got the temple. We can do what we like between each other. We can commit adultery. We can rob, but God won't do anything to us because we've got the temple. On and on they would go. We can burn incense to Baal, this made-up God. We can, bake, um, um, we can bake cakes to foreign gods, but the Lord won't do anything because we've got the temple. And on and on they would go. And so Jeremiah took his spot on the steps as they came in for worship. And he got stuck into the nation for this hypocrisy. So just think about it. When Jesus borrows a line from that sermon and uses it on this day, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. This is an ominous, ominous warning for Israel. Not long after Jeremiah's first first sermon, the whole temple was destroyed. God says you treat it like a lucky charm and he allowed the enemies to come in and the temple was smashed down. Once again, to borrow a line from that sermon and use it on this day is an ominous warning for this generation of Israel. Had their view of the temple become so corrupted that God might come and destroy it again, worse, destroy the nation again? A horrible warning for them. And, as we see here, the chief priests and the teachers picked up the warning. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew the point he was making. So they began to look for a way to kill Jesus. I mean, why should we change when we could just get rid of him? Have you been following, had you been following all the way through Mark's gospel with us, you might remember that Jesus has had a death sentence on him since chapter 3. But now that we're in the city where we know he'll be betrayed, everything takes on heightened expectation. They want to kill him, and by the time the week is done, they will kill him. But that's enough for that day. Jesus ever in control, verse 19. When evening came, he went out of the city. He goes back to Bethany. And then the morning, verse 20, in the morning they went along. So they're going back in, travelling back in again. And we're going to meet that fig tree. Peter's the one who spies it. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Verse 20 gives us that eyewitness detail again. It has withered from the roots. That is, it's totally died. Not just the leaves might have fallen off or a branch broken here or there. It's withered from the inside out. This whole thing is shriveled from the roots. The entire tree is now some kind of um, shrunken over stump. Nothing left at all. Now, I don't think you need to be a 
genius in literature to find some kind of connection here. There's the fig tree on the way in, what we saw in the temple, and the next day the whole fig tree is withered and crumpled over. Now, in case you're trying to work it all out, Jesus makes the point clear, Peter makes the point clear. The fig tree has come to represent the nation as a whole. Jesus went looking at the fig tree for fruit to eat, just as he went looking at the temple to find where the nation was in terms of their relationship with God. There was no fruit on the tree. There was no faith found at the temple. And so as the tree is cursed and withered up, that now stands again as another symbol of warning for the nation of Israel. Another connection which is a little bit more um, worrying, is the idea that approaching the fig tree to begin with, it looked from a distance to be quite healthy. Do you remember the point? It was very leafy, it was very green. It raised the expectation that there would be fruit, but there was no fruit. And so too with the temple. From a distance, it looks magnificent, It looked busy and bustling and pilgrims coming in and out at Passover. But on closer inspection, Jesus did not find the faith that he so longed to see. He did not find the nations praying or Israel's heart at prayer. On closer inspection, it simply wasn't there. Is it just possible that the magnificence of outward worship hid the real problem. And you see the contrast here that's all the way through the chapter. There's Jesus arriving. He does not look like a king on the donkey, but he is the king. And there's the temple that looks busy and righteous, but it is not righteous. Warnings for us all the way through this chapter. I think of myself. Am I in danger of being like that fig tree, that temple? With all the outward appearance, going through the motions, from a distance I look like I'm engaged in all of this ministry and worshipping God with all of my life. But on closer inspection, what is really in there? You can only see the outside. You can't see my heart. God can see my heart. What about us collectively as a church? Is it just possible we can be so busy, engaged with so much ministry, launching this, that, reaching out, doing everything Monday through Friday and Sunday as well? But what is God looking for on the inside of us and on the inside of our church? I pray that we will not be as bare as in faith as the fig tree was in fruit or the temple was in their real heart worship of God. So what's the answer then? I mean, things are wrapped up pretty neatly there with the fig tree part A, the temple fig tree part B. But let's not miss these last couple of words because these are the real answer to the problem of a religion that just goes more and more hollow and more and more shallow. The real answer is there in 22, 3, 4 and 5. I'll run it on from verse 21. Peter remembered, he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. What's Jesus' first thing he says? Have faith in God. That's where Jesus wants to push it. Have faith in God. 
And I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you for your sins. The answer to hollow worship and shallow religion is have faith in God. The kind of faith that recognises you as a sinner are nothing. The kind of faith that recognises that Christ as a saviour is everything. The kind of faith that rests in the hands of God for rescue. How do you know if you have that kind of faith? Well, faith is always based on true knowledge, so we need to be searching our minds for what, what is my faith in and allowing that to grow in by God's word. But Jesus brings out two parts of the Christian life. They're not the only two, but here are two characteristics of the Christian life that will be evident if you have faith in God. One is prayer. The other is forgiveness. Prayer and forgiveness. Not the only two, but two of the key markers of whether you have faith in God. Jesus has a couple of verses on prayer. He's describing deep, bold, powerful prayers. Prayers that relate and flow from faith in God. Prayers that are so confident in God's power that they are praying for the most insurmountable things and trusting that God has the power and the will to move those insurmountable things. Now, I just need to guard against taking these verses, just plucking them out and making them about praying just for your own personal shopping list. This is not prayer about uh, things that serve you or problems that are just all about you. It's prayer that comes from faith in God. And when we have deep faith in God, our prayers will reflect a dependence on God. Praying for the things that he as a heavenly father has promised to give us. When we have faith in God, our prayers will reflect a confidence in God, in line with all of his promises. The catch is that many of God's promises look to human eyes to be insurmountable. And so the test of whether you have faith is whether you'll keep praying the purposes of God, even though humanly speaking, we're unsure how they'll work out. But when we pray those prayers in line with the promises of God, the purposes of God, in deep dependence on him and confidence in him, mountains will move so the purposes of God um, will be fulfilled. But standing and praying is not the only marker of true relationship with God. And when you stand and pray, this is verse 25, if you're claiming this relationship between you and a powerful Heavenly Father, a loving Heavenly Father, if you're claiming that, then that will always flow out sideways as well. And the mark of how much you've understood your forgiveness in Christ as the one who gave his life on the cross for you, a marker of that is how willing you are to forgive others. Now, it doesn't, it's not as easy as snapping your fingers, my heart has changed, I forgive you, everything you've ever done is now just forgotten. There's more to it. There's much, much, much more to it. But the, our, our willingness to move along that path to forgiveness is 
always a reflection of our understanding of God's forgiveness of us. Now, Jesus could have picked lots of aspects of the Christian life, but he's chosen those two because these are the ones that were missing from Israel. They were not coming to God in real heart prayer. Oh, they said the words. They said the words, but their heart was far from God. And they claimed the relationship with God and called each other brother, sister in Israel, child of of Yahweh. And yet, in relationship, they were so divided and sectarian, full of anger and robbing from each other, their relationships were not reflective of that at all. So Jesus picks these two because these were the marks of hypocrisy in Israel. But could it just be that they're possible warning for where we need to reflect genuine faith in God as well? Deeper prayers that reflect confidence and dependence on God and then knowing, taking our forgiveness from God and allowing it to flow. Flow, flow, flow sideways as well so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. Well, let's wrap this up. We're following the life of Christ. We're now into the last week. We've already had a couple of days. Day one, day two, day three have gone pretty quickly. We're going to slow things down because Mark slows the story down. We've noticed the contrast. Jesus doesn't look like the king, but he is the king. And then here's the warning contrast for us. It is just possible on the outside to look like the people of God but not have anything on the inside. So when we come to meet Jesus, when he comes to visit us or we visit him, whichever way you want to think about it, when you come face to face with Jesus and he looks at you and he longs to find faith and dependence in his father because of his death, what will he find? And how can you help others here as a church family be what Christ wants to find in each of us as well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we'll just pause now for us to have a chance to examine our own hearts. After hearing Christ and his love of you and what he's done for us, but his warning about the heart... Help us to examine our hearts and by the power of the Spirit show us where we need to live out our faith in you. Show us so much of Christ, so much of his love that we can't help but be changed. Show us so much of his lordship and his mercy to us that we long to follow him with all we have and long to share his love with everyone around. We pray that when you come to visit us, when we stand before Christ, that we will be found in him. Amen.